football on Off The Ball. With Sky, the Premier League is back. Watch every live game for the rest of the season on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports. I'm prepared to end it my can. Well, do it then. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should be an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Oh. Yeah, welcome along to Monday's Football Show. Richie McCormick here with you this evening on Off The Ball. Thank you for joining us. Fantastic bill of fares served up at the Emirates yesterday where Arsenal maintained their five-point lead at the top of the Premier League with a 3-2 win over Manchester United. Turgid bill of fare, has to be said, at Anfield's Saturday lunchtime with Liverpool and Chelsea serving up a stinker. And today, Everton relieving Frank Lampard of his duties. Four defeats in a row in all competitions. They've not won in the Premier League since October. £84 million spent in the summer. They sit rock, well not rock bottom, but second from bottom in the Premier League, but sinking like a stone. Delighted to say joining us on the line to discuss all of that and more are Jonathan Wilson and Miguel Delaney. Gents, very good evening to you both. Evening. How are you doing? We'll start with uh, events which are most fresh in our minds from Goodison Park, where it seems they have relieved Frank Lampard of his duties. At the time we're talking, there's no official word come through their social media channels or the website, which is interesting. So this has all been done as a lot of the Moshiri reign has been, uh, Miguel, through the media. Um, but it seems like Everton, the way things are going, we're left with no other option. Yeah, I was. I, I don't think actually even, the, well, last I heard, which was about an hour ago, the players hadn't been officially told either. Um, and yeah, as you say, I mean, Mashiri was backing him right up until Saturday morning. Until, of course, the nature of that result and performance to go on top of pretty much every game they've had against everyone around them made it obvious. And I think, I mean, to be honest, it was obvious to a lot of people outside. There has been actually a little bit of a defense of Frank Lampard among Everton fans, especially for the way he kept up last year, but. Uh, and he did seem to kind of, there was an element to kind of the way he bought into their resilience of the club with the recent defiance. Uh, but that doesn't really change a lack of impact in terms of, in purely football terms, in tactics, in in in, in personnel. I mean, really, that's a mid-table squad, um, especially given the expenditure, given the talent available. But as with previous jobs, he's not getting the best out of it. Yeah, Jonathan, yeah, John. you, you can't really ignore the fact that uh, against Everton and against uh, the likes of Southampton and Manchester United in recent games, they haven't shown an ability to, well, in the Southampton case, hold on to a lead for sure, but really to defend in the manner in which a team of their stature in the Premier League at the moment befits. So you just don't want to lose games when you're in their position and they've been given far too many goals away. Yeah, I mean, they, they brought in uh, Tarkovsky and Cody and there was a, a sort of short-term uplift and I think with with both of them, they're sort of very good physical defenders. So you can rely on them to, to chuck the way in the way of the ball. Yeah, if, if it's a if it's a battle with a centre forward, they, they'll have as good a chance of winning it as anybody. Uh, they're very committed, um, but you need more than that. Uh, yeah, that's what can help a League One side occasionally to upset a Premier League side in, in the FA Cup. But you need that organisation. You you need to protect those defenders from having to be in that type of battle too often. Uh, and Lampard throughout his managerial career has has not been able to do that, and the the two the two modes by which his sides always can see goals, which I think is a, is a rough shorthand for is this the manager's fault? Uh, are pretty good signs are set plays, counter attacks, because both require organisation, both require work on the training ground. How do West Ham get their two goals? Set piece, 
counterattack. So Saturday was was a distillation of, of everything that's gone wrong for Lampard. Having said all of that, nobody has done well at Everton since David Moyes left. It's a really, really, really difficult job. So if this was Lampard's only job in management, I probably wouldn't be too critical. But it it, it comes after what happened to Chelsea and, and the, the, the patterns are, are pretty similar. So while there are clearly boardroom issues there and, and issues in the squad, there was also a managerial issue and that is something that can maybe at least begin to try and put right. Uh, Miguel, on, on the Jonathan's point about Lampard and, and almost having an out in the sense that the club is such a mess at the minute and the boardroom situation is so toxic and the relationship between the fans and the boardroom is so toxic that there's almost an out for Lampard here to say, well, listen, in these kind of circumstances, nobody, not a Jurgen Klopp, a Pep Guardiola or whoever else is going to succeed in these circumstances, he's not clearly going to put himself in the, those terms, but he will see it as, well, nobody could really do a job there. But you do have that lingering doubt in your back of your mind saying you could at least organise your defence a little bit better. But I, I mean, yeah, personally, I, I don't think the nature of the job reflects that well in Lampard, although I suppose reasonably, if he was pitching for his next job, he, he could point to that, that um, just it, it, this is what Everton have become. Uh, and it's it, you're all, it's it's so difficult for any manager to work there that it's not really a reflection of the manager. I don't completely agree with that. I think Lampard did contribute to issues. And also, I mean, there's something much bigger with Everton going on than Lampard, really. I mean, this is a club that's been in terminal decline for quite a while. Maybe not terminal, but in, in decline for a, long, for a long time. And I think this has been written repeatedly over the last few years. It's become more pronounced as we've gone on. But the, the issue with Everton, really, and, and to a certain degree, it's what Tottenham have at a higher level. Although obviously, Tottenham are much better run, much better uh, potential. But there's almost a sense of they're in denial about where they are as a club in 2023, or really the last decade, which is, and you can see that in some of the appointments they make, the big names, well, Lampard being one of them. Whereas when you're a club like Everton, you've, I mean, and it's interesting that, because I've heard they've, they were thinking about Thomas Frank, but um, Thomas Frank wasn't interested. Uh, and I mean, this is the thing, they've had his previous targets before. Why would managers leave these really well-run clubs to go at what is now in terms of kind of football structure, a bit of a basket case. But I mean, what, what really what Everton have had to do over the past few years is accept their financial level as a club, which is obviously kind of, it's obviously not the first tier, it's not the second tier, it might be in the third or fourth tier, and build from there. And rather than kind of trying to get, and this, is, this has been an issue with, them with the last few managers, where they've, like even, even with Carlo Ancelotti, for, for all that he ended up doing at Real Madrid, he did a, at best a par job at Everton, in which they're the sort of club who need to be getting the next thing with that being in a defined structure and a way of playing rather than kind of constantly get yesterday's big names because they know they're no longer um, employable by the top clubs because you're always playing catch up there. And, and Everton at the level they're at need to be ahead of the game, but in everything they've been doing, they've been way behind it. Jonathan, on that point, you kind of see Thomas Franks, when his name comes up, you see that Brentford, in the position that they were to have the foresight to appoint somebody like a Thomas Frank a couple of years ago, they have shown more foresight and more thought on how the club is run or how the club should be run on a football basis than a Premier League top flight stalwart like Everton have done. Yeah, they have. But I, I think if Thomas Frank had gone into Everton, or Everton appointed Thomas Frank as he was when Brentford appointed him, he'd have been hounded out by fans because there isn't an acceptance of where they are. You bring in this this Danish guy who nobody's heard of and 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 
they sort of say, well, he's not big enough for the job. As soon as things start to go wrong, there'll be criticism. But the point Miguel makes about the manager recruitment is true of the player recruitment as well. They keep on signing players who are on their way down, having played at a, a slightly higher level. So the likes of of Iwobi, Tarkovsky, Cody, uh, James Rodriguez, perhaps most most expensively, uh, Andros Townsend. The, you know, the, the, they're not looking for the the young prospect on the way up. And the, yeah, the danger with the young prospect is maybe he comes in and you only get him for two or three years and he moves to a bigger club, but then at least you make the money off it and you can reinvest that. And, and so I think it does come down. Yeah, well, one of the things that the board can say in their defence is, look, we spent loads of money, what do you want? But they spent it abysmally because they haven't been buying cheap and selling high. They've been buying high and and, and selling cheap. Uh, so loads of that money's been been wasted. But that, that that again, it comes down to this this question of a club not recognising its place in the in 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 you know, in, in the, the sort of natural order of the Premier of a modern Premier League. That they have to start low, and they they've got great potential for expansion, the new stadium and everything. That could all catapult them, maybe not into the, that tier one that Miguel was talking about, but certainly into that tier two. But they're nowhere near that at the moment, and actually now the stadium becomes a a massive potential problem because of the outlay they've already made on that, the the liabilities they've got with that. And what we don't know and have never known about the financing is was exactly where it was coming from. And there's this question hanging generally, we've got to be slightly careful what we say about this, sure. but question hanging around the financing of the club is so exactly what Mashiri's relationship with Usmanov, who's now been sanctioned, exactly what that is. And what we can say with confidence is historically they were very close from a business point of view that relationship has clearly had to to, to slightly separate post sanctions, but what exactly is Mashiri's financial strength at the moment? That that's really unclear, and I think that's a huge worry for, for Everton moving forward. That, that that question is exacerbated by his comments after the the West Ham game, where he is asked outright, you know, do you still support Frank Lampard? And he says, are you going to sack him? And his response is, well, it's not my decision. And suddenly today, it is his decision. And he is the one that, that's ultimately made this call. But we did have Simon Goodley's piece in The Guardian last week, which raised that question about Ali Shrusmanov's um, relationship with the club. And I know he's on the outs and that sanctions mean that he can't legally be involved with Everton. But, you know, we do have these renewed questions again of where's the money coming from? Who is the one in that boardroom making the calls? Is it Bill Kenwright? Is it um, Ali Shrusmanov? Is it uh, Farhad Mashiri? Or is it somebody else? Um because they do seem to be pulling in several different directions. And if that's the case, then there's literally no hope for that board to try and coalesce and bring the club forward in the direction that it needs to go. Jonathan, I'll put well, that to you first. Sorry, Miguel, yeah, go on ahead. But there's even an issue now in that they're in, a, they're in a bind again because they're obviously in a pretty desperate situation with the stadium complicating it further, as well as the potential cost of falling at the Premier League. So they go for a short-term appointment to keep them up. And then the press, so that, this is... This could be a potential issue with, say, Sean Dyche, in that Dyche could feasibly keep them up in that kind of classic advertised way. But if he does that, then there's a pressure to appoint him in the medium to long term. But he's probably not what they want in the medium to long term because they want to go their own way. So like at every, at every step, there's these, these kind of considerations and tough decisions that are all created by a series of bad decisions before that. Jonathan, that border mess, as you say, and the fans' relationship with them, where do you even begin to untangle that? I, I mean, that's incredibly difficult. Um, I mean, the, the truth is, if you win some football matches, then the fans' uh, opposition will will calm down and, and you'll get a less fevered environment. 
But how do you start winning football matches? Well, you have to appoint a coach who's, who's going to get the best out of what you've got. And, and you almost feel at this stage, they almost need to go down to clear out the dead. Whatever danger that is, maybe they don't come back. Maybe they keep going down. Um, and there's a sort of natural level for Everton. You know, they, they, they're not they're clearly not a League One club, but maybe they are an upper championship club these days. And, and that would be the worry. Um, but you also have, I mean, we've seen it, maybe we've even seen it with Everton, but we've seen it with a number of clubs, I mean, Sunderland certainly, where they end up spending big in January to get players in to keep them up. They try and trim the squad in in the summer to to, to get the fans back in order. But that then means they're back in trouble come the following January, so they have to spend big again. And the thing, every time the cycle goes around, it gets worse and worse and worse. So... I mean, you, you can't really make these decisions unless you have a very clear idea what those finances are. But at some point, they, they've they've got to put in place a long-term plan, not dissimilar to what Brentford have done, what Brighton have done. I think they're the two outstanding models at the minute of what you can do on fairly limited resources. But it's all very well to say that. Actually doing it is really difficult because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. To get your recruitment that good, to be able to put out a team as 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 strong as a team Brighton put out against, say Liverpool, when that it costs what thirty one million pounds, I think the the starting eleven, that's incredibly difficult to do, and that requires a complete overhaul of of scouting, of recruitment, of um, that whole side of the club, and yet you've got to balance that with a coach who's needs short term results to keep you in the in the Premier League to 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 at least keep you going with Premier League money for now and and and, and maintaining that status to to attract players so yeah, the, the it's a it's it's really really difficult to put it right what i will say slightly in Mishiri's defense in regard to those comments on saturday mm. um when when he says it's not my decision i sort of think that's fair enough because i th- i think what he meant by that was i have to talk it over with the board yeah and that that is correct you know, the, the, because the alternative is, well, Mashiri is riding roughshod over over the board. He's this dictatorial figure. Well, I think that's that's much worse. I think I think that comment has been slightly taken out of context. But I mean, that doesn't hide the fact that yeah, generally the whole thing's been a mess and has been for years. Miguel, before we move on to to yesterday's game, Dyche seems to be the call here. Although the names that have been mentioned in connection with the job are all over the map. You've got everyone from Marcel Bielsa to Ralph Hasenhutl to to Sean Dyche himself. This seems to be the most natural and most sensible call. It's whether they're actually able to make it and whether Dyche goes along with this, I guess, is the big question. Well, you, the range of names you mentioned there are kind of like, they, they sum it up in the sense that this is a club. I mean, I shouldn't even really get to this point, but it's a club without an ideology. But then they're... Yeah. They put an ideology in place. Need to have all sorts of other things in place, <laughs> and and I suppose this also. I mean, Dyche is obviously interest. Um, I'm not sure I'd currently go as strong, maybe as others are saying, just because there is this dilemma in that it's the short term versus the medium term. And again, it comes. This is one of many decisions that Everton have to make now. Well, like how are they thinking? What are they looking at? But then I suppose. As as Jonathan's kind of pointed there, given the, the, the potential financial cost, uh, just staying in the Premier League might trump everything. But then you get into this, you potentially get into the same cycle again. 
Yeah, we shall see. I guess the next 24 hours will probably tell us a lot uh, about that situation. Although they do have some wiggle room, of course. Uh, Everton not involved in the Cup this weekend and their next league game isn't until the, the week after that. So football brought to you by Sky here and Off the Ball. Watch all the football you love, including the biggest Premier League games every weekend, live on Sky. Uh, the biggest of them, Jonathan, of course, was yesterday at the Emirates. Uh, Arsenal preserving that five-point lead at the top of the Premier League with a 3-2 win over Manchester United, showing great resilience uh, to counterpunch against a really improving Manchester United side yesterday showing the benefit of, of the development of youth that they've had there in the last couple of years with Bakayo Saka and Eddie Nketiah being their two main men. Um, was this, as some have said, Jonathan, a proving ground for Arsenal's title credentials or is it merely they're halfway along the road now they need to just keep this kind of thing up? Um, I mean, there's so many ways of answering that. I, I think all you have to say is that last 20 minutes was incredibly impressive from a performance point of view. And, and so there's huge amounts of positives to be taken from that. The fact they win the game is incredibly important and impressive because it maintains that lead. I mean, you know, if, I know they've got a game in hand, but if a lead had been down to three points, suddenly you're thinking, oh, City are only within, yeah, they win one win of them. And then maybe they get a bit twitchy. Um, and Ketia getting the winner in the way he does, suddenly you know, he sort of becomes cast almost as a as a Christopher Ray figure or a, a Martin Hayes figure or a Federico Makeda figure as the slightly unlikely figure who who gets crucial goals along the way. Uh and you know, imagine the the, the reaction to him had he not got that goal and everybody remembered the, the, the save that was made from by De Gea after eighty four minutes. And then it'd be oh like against Newcastle and Kenya has the late chance to win the game and he's missed it and there's four points left on the table. And how critical could that be? So all of those things are, uh, are hugely important. The thing that just slightly concerns me with Arsenal, uh, and, and maybe this is to do with us as much as it is to do with, with Arsenal itself, is that it almost feels like we're in the running already and every every point, every match is being treated as as, as crucial as, as, as this great, great test. There's still half a season to go. And, and I'm not sure how long you can maintain that sort of nervous energy, that emotional intensity. I, I, I do worry that because of the World Cup and the timing of it, and the fact we're sort of three games behind where we'd normally be at this stage of a year, that the people have gone slightly early with 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 the run in. But having said that, the yeah, five points clear with a game in hand, they're in a great position. And if they replicate their performance from the first half of the season, second half of the season, they will win the title. The maximum points City can get is 99. They've got 50 at the halfway stage. So yeah, in that sense, they, they can start ticking the games off. 17 wins, they win the title. Uh, Miguel, on that, like there is a certain element, and I don't know, this is probably our own historical hang-ups and, and a lot of the stuff that Arsenal have fed us over the past two decades in the sense that they can have all the talent in the world, but in years gone by, they've lacked a sense of nerve that seemed to be there in evidence and and, and with uh, with a plan there yesterday. But, but I suppose, I mean, even that lack of nerve, that was really because we were in the the aftermath, or sorry, the latter stage of anger. So it just, it didn't have the same energy. This is something different. This is reminiscent of when Liverpool were on the up under Klopp. But just in a like I do agree with Jonathan, obviously there's, there's a sense of kind of maybe um, exaggerating the importance of every game and it does, because of the feel of running and all that. But that said, if you like, if you do take say Klopp's first proper title race in in England in 2018-19, it I mean it pretty much did start from this way out, and they they had a seven point lead over City. The game against each other in early January that year was considered huge. But also, and I know Liverpool fans quibble when this is said, but I think it's true just because of the kind of the standard that City set. And of course, there's bigger arguments here about you know. 
the influence of finances and, and, and state projects that we've discussed before. But in that season, it was basically, it was a few draws, one at Goodison Park, uh, one at West Ham, that that really cost Liverpool that season. Saw, the, saw their lead, lead further away uh, and kind of allowed City back in. And I think that's the kind of pressure we feel. And that's why there is this extra pressure on Arsenal. It's because of that sense that at any point, City can just go on one of those runs and suddenly Arsenal drop maybe drop one game or two games and and, and it, 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 there's just that kind of mathematical process takes over the sheer numbers, the sheer force of City, um, and, which is why it's so important for Arsenal to keep, to keep that momentum. I was, I was thinking of it as I was kind of um, putting my match report together yesterday before having to hastily change everything after Kenny <laughs> a goal. But like, had Arsenal got four points from Manchester United and Tottenham, uh, after a performance like that, it would have been to their credit, but at the same time, it would have made them feel fallible. Where still now, suddenly they, they just have that momentum now, uh, and I, I actually, but apart from the momentum, I have to say, um, that last twenty minutes was, I think, as good as I've seen an Arsenal side under Arteta play. It was felt like the re- this fullest realization of what what he wants them to be, and also to be chasing a game like that, and like there was no hint of desperation about it or panic or rush it was it was really an ideal played at a relentless pace and it was really really impressive Jonathan it feels like maybe this is just a consequence of the way the fixtures uh, were shaken out but we'll get to the Liverpool Chelsea game in a moment but I, I think how bad that game was as a spectacle and how good yesterday was the fact that Arsenal are in the ascendancy and on top of the league it seems like it is a Manchester United squad that is on the up and that will be in a similar position, say 12 months down the line that Arsenal are in now, that it almost seemed like a changing of the guard and in a respect a throwback to the to the days when Christopher Ray was was netting unlikely winners for Arsenal. Uh, in some ways, I mean, I, I, it was a much more open game than those old Arsenal United games. Um, it was a much more enjoyable game. You know, the, the, maybe the sense of, of heightened drama and tension wasn't quite there in the way it used to be. Uh, but in the sense that, yeah, this is a really major game. I, I think I think we've all been to Arsenal United games over the last sort of five or six years where it's felt a bit flat. Um, I, don't, I don't think so long term we should be necessarily writing Liverpool and Chelsea off at the minute. I mean, that that was not clearly there was a huge gulf between the quality of the two games. But I, I, you know, I think you do have to remember Liverpool and Chelsea both have you know, huge numbers of injuries. I, I think they will be a lot stronger yeah but there's no reason for them both not to be a lot stronger next season and, and I really hope that is the case I really hope that we we can actually have sort of five or six sides properly challenging and I think possibly given the advantages City have that, that Newcastle may may end up having we, we we probably need those other clubs to, to to maintain that level just just to keep it competitive yeah Miguel before I know you have to go um a week ago on the show we were kind of talking about Manchester United as prospective title candidates um, it's now one point from a potential six uh, in the week it was. It turns out it was a huge week for them but I guess a reality check in terms of how far along they are down the line under Ten Hag Yeah I mean um, I, I asked Ten Hag after the game actually whether he was encouraged by performance or whether uh, elements how they lost it uh, irritated him and he <laughs> he responded with fury essentially at his players he said he was re- at that moment he was really annoyed we want to win titles. You can't make mistakes like that. And, he, and then he told them uh, after the game in the dressing room. Um, and I think that's obviously all fair. And that's why Ten Hag has been a good appointment, will be a good appointment. Uh, but equal, I think if you do stand back a bit, it, it, it did feel like the, the game as a whole just probably reflected 
the different points where Arsenal Manchester United. Arsenal now had three years under Arteta with with some pain. It's actually and it's to Arsenal's real credit and to Arteta's real credit that they showed patience in that sense and basically accepted fallow seasons to build something bigger. And away clubs don't do that. And away Manchester United didn't for so long. And of course, but United are basically what two and a half years behind that. Ten Hag had to go defensive yesterday, or sorry, he had to go counter-attacking or react to what Arsenal are doing because he, he, even though it's not his ideal, he doesn't feel United can take Arsenal on in those terms right now. Um, I mean, but on the whole, yeah, I mean, I'd be encouraged by Manchester United, and, it, and I suppose this is this is the point that was always made throughout the last decade. If you get the right coach and have two or three win, two or three good windows, things can change very quickly. Klopp proved that. Arteta has now proved that and I do think United and Ten Hag can prove that Yeah we'll see how they get on now the next uh, couple of weeks uh, Miguel for now thanks so much Jonathan's going to stick with us right now we're just going to take a short break Have this friendly against Latvia which is a little bit of a nothing game it could be interesting that game now if it is the case that this is when Evan Ferguson starts and maybe that's his chance Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app Football on Off The Ball With Sky All the football you love in one place Across Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports Yeah, welcome back to Monday Night's Football Show Richie McCormick here with you Uh, Delighted to say Jonathan Wilson still on the line there with us Uh, Jonathan, we'll we'll delve into that Liverpool-Chelsea game a little bit more Although on the surface of things there probably isn't a whole lot to delve into Um, But it certainly was, I think uh, a point of where both time, both teams just didn't want to slip up any further than they possibly could in the league and really did cancel each other out on Saturday. Yeah, and, and you could see it was two teams who were low on confidence, uh, quite a lot of misplaced passes, quite a lot of caution. Um, I, you know, I thought the first half was poor. The second half, I thought, picked up a bit. It was, it was an all right game. But it, it, yeah, it was it was very tense. It was very nervy. But I, I do think, you know, as, as, as I said before, I think you've got to bear in mind just how many injuries both teams had. And I think for, from a, a Chelsea point of view, you'd be mildly encouraged by that. I think they probably had the better of the game. And Mudrick looked a really exciting, um, really exciting player. And you sort of think that, that yeah, in, in, in the weeks to come, uh, when he starts to, to, to start games, he, you know, he could give him a bit of an edge that I, I think the... The wide players that that they've had perhaps haven't been giving them. It kind of almost, in a sense, calmed down the chatter around Graham Potter's future at the club. I got the sense of, and that there seemed to be a lot of talk of like pressures on, and if a couple of rules don't go his way, and we might see mirroring of the Abramovich era, whereby uh, Todd Bowley has no kind of truck in trying to get rid of a coach if things aren't working out, at least in the short term. But this seems to have bought them a little bit of time. They've got signings coming in, signings that are going to. Maybe take a little time to bet in, uh, and others when they get Joe Felix back from suspension, and they get others back from injury. They do have the potential to be quite an exciting unit, Chelsea. They do. I mean, I think it's a big risk what they're doing at the minute. The, I mean, a, an enormous squad they've got. I mean, they're going to have to pay some players to leave. Essentially, um, I know they've got huge problems in terms of who they register for the for the Champions League. Um, they're only allowed to make three three changes. Uh, so a lot of the players they brought in, or at least some of the players they brought in in January, won't be in that that European squad. Uh, I think Badia Shields looked 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 pretty impressive in his two games yeah. so far. Mudrick, uh, I mean, the one thing I'd say 
about yeah, fundamentally very impressive debut. He's obviously very young. He hasn't played for a long time. His first game in a new country. So in a sense, this criticism is is slightly absurd. And, and let, let's see how it goes. But the one thing that slightly concerned me, something that to, to, I think to look out for in the next few weeks, is that he has only scored twelve goals in his career so far. And I know he's only played 30, 39 games, I think it is now, which isn't a huge number. Um, and one in three for a winger is is fine. But he, the two chances he had, the one that he he made for himself with that yeah, brilliant little jinking run, and then he sort of slashed at the shot. There wasn't much composure there with the shot where yeah, I, th- I think the the right attempted finish would have been a, to attempt to dink it over, over Allison. Um I, you know, the, the the way he took that shot on, there was sort of no way he was... If, he, if he'd assessed where Allison was, there was no way he could score like that. Whereas at least if he'd missed the dink, you'd have said, well, okay, it's the, it's the right attempted finish. And then there was the uh, there was a, a crossfield ball from the right came to the back post. And I think probably he should have tried to take it first time. He tried to control it and it, it ends up going out of play. And so you sort of think, well, is he one of those players who, who for whatever reason, is, is not a great finisher, who sort of slightly loses his composure in front of the goal. Now, yeah, as, as I said, he's he's young. He's got plenty of time to learn that. His first game after a long break, you can't be too critical of that. But that, that is something that, that I just sort of noted down to keep an eye on in the next few weeks. He kind of has, in a weird way, he has space to develop because that squad is so big and there will be players going back from injury and they're so stocked in the final third, Chelsea, that he will have time to kind of work his way in and, and work out the kinks a little bit but I can't remember who it was I don't even know if it was yourself the other week saying that he's one of these players who if Spartak hadn't have been forced to shed their Brazilian contingent um, because of the war on uh, over there he probably wouldn't have gotten his chance and suddenly is, is, is an 86, 100 million pound player depending mm. on what figure you believe out of nowhere and out of a really short stint of form and it for another team would be a massive risk for Chelsea they can kind of shrug and say, "Well, if this doesn't work out, we'll see where it goes and and move him on, or at least take the long game and trying to develop him." Yeah, I mean, um, th- yeah, that's one of the reasons why he's only scored the twelve goals because he hasn't been a regular for Shakhtar. That you, know, you sort of look at him and you think, "How has that kid not been playing since seventeen or eighteen in the yeah. Ukrainian league?" Um, I, I guess the Ukrainian league is it is quite physical. Maybe maybe they are slightly cautious. Um, maybe it is a, a financial issue of. You bring in the Brazilians and you look to build them up and sell them on, and that, that's just how their model works. And you know, we, I think we're still in a world where Brazilian players carry a bit of extra price to Ukrainian players. Um, so, yeah, that that that's the, the fact we haven't seen a huge amount of him. I, I, you know, I think would be a concern. I don't think Chelsea can be too cavalier about. Oh, we'll just pay the money and then yeah, if it doesn't work, never mind. Um, I think they the. They're really front-loading the FFP. They, 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 they're in quite a healthy position in the squad's FFP because of not having made huge losses over the previous two or three years. Um, so they, they've, they've got a bit of wiggle room with that. But giving the long contracts, I, 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 I understand that that allows you to amortise the fee uh, over a long period. I know that uh, Mudrick's wages are, I think they're under £100,000 a week, basic, and then you know, bonuses on top, which is the model Bowley wants to go to. So in a sense, that's not really a, a worry, but it does become a worry if if you have significant numbers of these players who are bringing young players who are bringing on 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 long contracts, if they don't work out, where are they in four or five years' time with this sort of yeah, I don't, yeah three, four, five, six players on still on long contracts, still three or four years left on on 
on these contracts with the the transfer fee still being paid off in you know in terms of the amortization uh in, in, in as as regards to the FFP calculation uh with the the liability of their wages that that means that they need a high proportion of them to work out and i, I do slightly fear that um Bowley's looked at this or or you know his advisors have looked at this and thought well we'll We'll front load all of this, and these players, the young, so they'll retain their value. And you know, in most industries, that would be true. It's not just true in football. I think players' values fluctuate wildly in terms of football. And I think Chelsea only have to look at Lukaku to to see that that a player they signed for ninety million, ninety five million, whatever it was, eighty five million, um, a huge sum, only eighteen months ago. How much would he get from now? Twenty. You know, it's players' values can drop very quickly, uh, and I think that's particularly true of a young player without a huge amount of experience. And we've seen it with people like like Deli Ali that that form is is very fragile, and 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 players players can go into into dips. Uh, and I think especially a young player in a in a new country, it's difficult. You can't you can't. There's no guarantees there. Mm. On that, with the the long contracts and the younger players, um, is that a model that is basically built of circumstance from Chelsea's point of view, and and how they do want to front load and and find a workaround for for FFP, or is it a model you can see being instilled by other clubs where they kind of think, actually, do you know what we can probably cooking the books is probably a, a, the wrong term here, but trying to find workarounds uh, in the best possible way that they can legally to to get around FFP and and, and its hurdles. Well, I, I sort of, I guess I've got two answers to that. So the first is, if this is viable, why has nobody else done it? Um, and maybe maybe it's just that football is a sort of slightly old-fashioned industry where people do things the way they've always done them. And this is, this is the advantage of somebody coming in from the outside who who doesn't have previous experience of the industry, you can sort of look at it with fresh eyes and say, oh, no, let's do it this way. Mm. But as I said, I think it's a huge risk because if if you haven't got that recruitment right, um, then what's your next step? Where do you go from there? Because you've got this, this these liabilities there. You suddenly haven't got that financial wiggle room, either in absolute terms or in terms of FFP. And I, I think we've seen it clubs... Um, you've tried to do similar things, but if you bring in a large number of players in one tranche, I think it'd be very difficult to to mould them together. Um, yeah, it can work, but you know, I think once you bring in more four, four, more than four or five players in a window, that that can be very disruptive. And and I think if you are bringing in, you know, eight, nine, ten players at once, you've got to have a very very clear idea of what your philosophy is, how you want the team to play. And nothing I've really seen or heard from Bowley suggests to me that that he has that. Now, maybe Graham Potter does have a very clear vision and, and you absolutely can't fault what Brighton did in terms of recruitment with him. But was that him or was that was that Brighton doing that? And that's that's what I I don't I don't quite understand. Mm. Because I, I can't see a pattern apart from the fact they're all young and all promising, I can't really see a pattern to the players that the Chelsea bringing in, uh, um, and that sort of was the problem with the squad they already had. It's full of quite good players; they just don't don't really fit together. Uh, and, and I guess adding to that sense of unease is the way that 
every time another Premier League club sort of says, oh yeah, we're quite interested in this player, we're negotiating for this player, suddenly Chelsea are in there gazumping them and say, so, oh, no, we love him. Are they, so are they actually doing their own recruitment? Or are they doing their own scouting? Or are they just watching other clubs and then, then leaping in at the last minute? I think this is the first window as well where they've had like new sporting director, new director of football, um, and you're kind of, they're working out the kinks of those relationships, I guess, between them and Graham Potter and between them and the board and between Potter and the board. So it probably won't have any sense of narrative or shape until the next window or the window after that, you'd imagine. Yeah, that's true. Um yeah, you look back to the summer, and yeah, they spent a quarter of a billion pounds. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, the biggest expenditure by any club in any window anywhere. Which I mean, I'm not sure that's sort of talked about enough. Mm. Um, an extra, extraordinary expenditure, led by Thomas Tuchel, in the absence of a sporting director, and a week after the end of the window, Tuchel sacked, and none of those players have played particularly well so far. Kulabali. Looks too old. Sterling, yeah, it just looks lost. Kukurea has gone backwards rapidly. Uh, Fafana's been injured, so it's a maybe maybe he'll come. Um, I feel like I'm missing somebody, obviously. Who's the other big player that's... Uh, Oof, you've got me there. Uh, I mean, Zakaria's actually been all Zakaria, right. Yeah. Been the, 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 I mean, he's only on loan, but he's probably been the, the best of those signings so far. And the last one in the door in, in September as well, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you can. I sort of feel they've almost written off that quarter of a billion already. That they sort of accepted that. Oh yeah, we didn't really spend that that well, and um, you know, we 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 move on with this new plan of signing kids. We forgot Pierre Emerick Aubameyang, by the way. Aubameyang, yeah, <laughs> he's been has not been good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very finally, as well, I wanted to touch on Manchester City. Three 0 win for them over Wolves yesterday. Uh, another hat trick. Uh, I think fourth of the season for Erling Haaland. Um, but still a sense that they're not where City probably should be in terms of overall performance. Is that fair? Um, yeah, I mean, look, the last the last game and a half, scoring four in the second half against Tottenham, beating Wolves pretty comfortably, but there's nothing wrong with that. But I guess you maybe, I certainly expect the result against Wolves. Um, I, think, I think the concern would be, you look at... Look at them after half a season. So after 19 games, and they'd scored 50 goals and conceded 20. Last season, after 19 games, they'd scored 50 goals and conceded, I think it was 12. Um, so, you know, in total last season, they scored 99 goals, conceded 26. So fundamentally, for all that Holland looks brilliant and looks unstoppable, and yeah, got another hat trick of what, four hat tricks already, mm. and, and has been sensational you know sort of forward I, I can't remember ever seeing in the Premier League before for all that they're scoring exactly the same number of goals as last season but they're conceding more because they're having to play forward quicker too and that's leaving them more vulnerable to the counter so so that 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 doubt is 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 still there and to an extent you sort of think well it doesn't really matter because whether they score you know 100 goals in a season or 150 goals in a season is kind of irrelevant What's relevant is how many goals have they scored in the quarterfinal and semi-final of the Champions League. That's why they've been sl- slipping up. And you know, City, I'm sure, will get high 80s, low 90s points. If Arsenal get mid-90s, they win the league and good luck to them. I, I don't think that's something really necessarily to criticise City for if they then have a good run in the Champions League as well. If they end up getting yeah, 88 points in the league and go out in the quarterfinal of the Champions League again, then I think you, you do say, well, is... 
is Holland and all the changes to style they've made, has is, is he really been worth it? And at that point, and it's like we're, we're counting on ifs and buts and three months down the line and all that kind of stuff, if they do suffer like a quarterfinal, semi-final exit the Champions League and they are faltering in the league in the sense that they're not winning it, do you start raising questions over, over Guardiola's future there? Because the Champions League is their holy grail and they've won they can win leagues for fun and they can win leagues you know almost not by not by not by not trying but certainly they can win them with a lot more ease than other teams can get near but if they don't continue to compete in the Champions League do you raise that question? I think I mean I think that'll be very hard I think the question to be raised is would he be able to pick himself up to go again mm. to what extent is he driven by winning another Champions League um, yeah, having not won one since 2011 and um, yeah, there's not many managers who've won Champions League with a with a bigger gap than you know be what be twelve years worried to win it this year. Yeah, I think there's I think there's only two managers that have ever won it with a, with a bigger gap. Um, so uh, so yeah, I think there's only Hankers and Happel who've, who've ever done that. Um, so so uh, yeah, I, I think it would be very much spent on him. I, I I can't see any circumstance in the near future in which. City looking to offload him, mm. um, you know, to, to regularly be pulling out ninety odd point seasons in the league. If you if you slip up repeatedly in the Champions League, even if it's a similar failing each time, I, I, I think to to sacrifice a manager over that when all else is so good, when you're sort of redefining what's possible in football, I think would be extraordinarily harsh. Now I, I don't sense any appetite at City to do that. He's kind of bought his own. Um taken in there that like he's the one who can, who's ultimately going to you know decide his own future and, and and what he wants to do not only at City but I guess in football down the line then that there's enough credit in the bank and enough positivity behind him that it's his call whatever he wants to do from this point onwards yeah absolutely I mean yeah the, the club was designed on on his model you know, mm. before he was appointed he was advising on structure you know maybe in an indirect way um but yeah, yeah, the fact they they brought in Fernando Soriano and Tibergiestein, people he'd worked with before, the fact they created this sort of Barcelona style model, yeah, he he was the manager they'd identified early. He was the one they wanted. Yes, City is built to Guardiola model, and even if there's a maybe a even if there were some kind of frustration that you know why can he not get them to 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 win the Champions League? Why can he not get them to another final? Uh, even even were that to happen, I still think there'd be an awareness of, oh, hang on, what what's the alternative? Who do we bring in? Uh, because whoever you bring in will want to do things in a different way, and that sure. will lead to enormous upheaval. And and I I, I I just don't see why they'd want to put themselves through that when fundamentally everything is going pretty well. What we're talking about are tiny quibbles. They're still mm-hmm. yeah second in the league and. Yeah, may yeah, okay. Maybe they're not quite favourites now, but they do still have to play Arsenal twice. They win those two games, suddenly the leads two points, and that looks very winnable. And they've won four of the last five titles. Yeah, they they could win a hat trick of titles. I I don't think he's under any external pressure. Yeah, Man City going to be okay. Uh, who does want it? Uh, Jonathan Wilson, thanks so much for joining us this evening. Cheers, thank you. There you go. Football on Off the Ball brought to you by Sky. Watch all the football you love, including the biggest Premier League games every weekend live on Sky. We'll be back after this. Football on Off the Ball with Sky. Proud partner and supporter of the Republic of Ireland women's national football team. This is News Talk.